Well, tonight we're back in our study of Jude, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, picking up there in, in verse 8. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to share a couple things just to remind us where we've been in this book. Uh, I think the last time we met was December 7th of 2022, so last year. So I just want to kind of bring us up to speed. And I was reading something this past week, and uh, have you ever read something that was written long, long, long time ago, <laughs> and yet it seems so applicable? It just seems like, wow, I can't believe this, this is us today. And uh, it's just perfect. It's so pertinent and everything. And it, it just feels like it was written yesterday. And I want to share uh, a quote uh, by a man who was an author and a pastor back in the 19th century. And his name was J.C. Ryle. And it, it's very pertinent to what we're going to be talking about as we continue on in Jude and um, he was an Anglican bishop, and he basically penned these words about uh, Christians in his day. Like I said, in the late 1800s. And you can find these words in his uh, publication, Principles for Churchmen. Just a compilation of positive things for people who are in ministry. But it's, as I was reading this, it's so scary how, how um, his words ring true today and um, he wrote these words back in 1884 and he was he was really he was really pondering and lamenting over the 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 presence of of what he called jellyfish christianity that was his label and uh, what he described as jellyfish christianity are those who uh, refuse to stand up they refuse to support they refuse to uh, defend their biblical beliefs. And uh, he was lamenting how many Christians in 1884 were like that. And uh, uh, listen to what he said. It's, it's, it's a kind of a long quote, so just be, bear with me, but just prayerfully listen. He says, One plague of our age is the widespread dislike to what men are pleased to call dogmatic theology in the place of it the idol of the day is kind of jellyfish christianity a christianity without bone without muscle without sinew without any distinct teaching about the atonement or the work of the spirit or justification or the way of peace with god it's a vague foggy misty christianity of which the only watchword seems to be you must be liberal and kind. You must condemn no man's doctrinal views. You must consider everybody is right and nobody is wrong. I mean, it's just amazing, right? Um, he goes on, he says, and this creedless kind of religion we are told is to give us peace of conscience and not to be satisfied with it in a sorrowful dying world is a proof that you are very narrow-minded satisfied indeed such a religion might possibly do for unfallen angels but to tell sinful dying men and women with the blood of our father adam in our veins to be satisfied with it 
is an insult to common sense and a mockery of our distress. We need something far better than this. We need the blood of Christ. And he goes on, he says, the disdain for being dogmatic in your beliefs is an epidemic, which is just now doing great harm. And especially, listen to this, back in that day, he says, especially among young people. It produces, he says, what I venture to call jellyfish Christianity in the land. That is Christianity without bone or muscle or power. A jellyfish is a pretty graceful object when it floats in the sea, contracting and expanding like a little delicate transparent umbrella. Yet the same jellyfish, when cast on the shore, is a mere helpless lump (laughs) without capacity for movement, self-defense, or self-preservation. Alas, is it It is a vivid type of much of the religion of this day, of which the leading principle is no dogma, no distinct tenets, and no positive, which he means beneficial, no positive beneficial doctrine. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen, he says, who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. They have not, they have not, definite opinions they belong to no school or party they are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all we have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year sermons without an edge or without a point or a corner they're smooth as billiard balls awaking no sinner and edifying no saint He says we have legions of jellyfish men annually turned out from our universities armed with a few scraps of second-hand philosophy who think it a mark of cleverness and intellect to have no decided opinions about anything in religion and to be utterly unable to make up their minds as to what is Christian truth. They live apparently in a state of suspense like Mahatma's fabled coffin hanging between heaven and earth. And last, worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respectable church-going people who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. They cannot discern things that differ any more than colorblind people can distinguish colors. They think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Everything is true and nothing is false. All sermons are good and none are bad. Every clergyman is sound and no clergyman is unsound. They are tossed to and fro like children by every wind of doctrine, often carried away by any new excitement and sensational movement, ever ready for new things because they have no firm grasp of the old things and utterly unable to render a reason of hope that is in them in them never was it so important for laymen to hold systematic views of truth and for ordained ministers to enunciate dogma very clearly and distinctly in their teaching isn't that a great quote i mean it's it's just so so today it's describing the church today Because Christianity, jellyfish Christianity, is very much alive and well today on planet Earth. 
It's a, it's a Christianity that has no backbone. It shows no spine. It has no nerve. It's made up of people who refuse to stand up for what they know to be right because they're afraid of what others might think of them. They're, they're afraid of what others might do to them. They're afraid of what others might really talk about them, maybe say about them behind their backs. And so it is a Christianity with no courage, no fortitude, no perseverance, no willingness to say what needs to be said, no matter what the consequences that come to them. And, and we have that everywhere today. And often that comes from jellyfish creatures. <laughs> um, you could say jellyfish preachers preaching jellyfish sermons, producing jellyfish Christians in jellyfish churches. And what happens is we have jellyfish preachers who refuse to have any kind of spine in their sermons, and so they refuse to be dogmatic on anything. We see that all over the place. Instead, they choose to be what? Diplomatic. They're diplomatic in virtually every single subject in which they preach. You can't pin them down on anything. Why is that? I think because they're afraid that they'll be called out, they'll be labeled judgmental, they'll be labeled extremist, they'll be labeled fanatical, maybe they'll get canceled, or God forbid, worst of all, they'll be called intolerant. I mean, today we live in the most intolerant, tolerant society that there ever was. And so they preach these smooth sermons that would make a cue ball proud but there's no edge to them there's no point there's nothing that would confront anyone it certainly wouldn't make a sinner angry but it sure won't make any saints motivated to do anything either and so they stand up week after week and serve jellyfish sermons creating jellyfish christians that are happy to be in a jellyfish church Praise God, we're not a jellyfish church. It's everywhere. I pray that we would not be jellyfish Christians, but rather men and women who, first of all, know the truth, right? They know the truth. They have a backbone to stand up for the truth. And we have a constant gaze and a compassion for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray as we go through this book of Jude that we are noting his warnings to us. Because this isn't too far removed from us as a church, just so you understand. Not in the society we live in today. Uh, I pray that we are taking note of what Jude is instructing us as we work our way through this small epistle. Because really everything we see in society today is the total, complete opposite what we see in the church today is the complete opposite of what Jude has been teaching us. I mean, we've been going through this book verse by verse now for a couple weeks, and Jude is saying to that church and to this church, to our church, to every church in between, you know what, you have to stand up. That's what he says there in verse 3. He says, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Contend for the truth. Contend for the gospel revealed to us in the word of god what's that mean 
he's calling us to defend it. He's calling us to stand for it, to protect it, to guard it, to get a spine, show a backbone. And the result is, basically, by not doing that, we have churches that are full of people who come to church, and they can basically tell you uh, what's right from wrong. They can tell you that. But I would hate to tell you that they can't tell the subtle doctrinal difference be differences between what's right and what's almost right. They have no clue. And so therefore, well, they're all, they're all good guys. And that's where false, false teaching lives. That's where it, it, it really grows. That's where it proliferates the best. It lives in the land between right and almost right. And that's where we find the difficulty. And that's where there's these shades and subtleties and differences in, in, in doctrine really, really lie. And that's why we have to be people who, first of all, know the truth, know the faith, know the gospel. Know that when we hear that which we know to be wrong, we have the ability to stand up and defend it. Not just say, well, that's their point of view. I mean, that word there, when he says contend for the faith, it's, it's to strive in a contest, in a rivalry against difficult circumstances. It stresses the need to defend the truth continually and vigorously. It doesn't stop. And so there's two kinds of ways, there's two kinds of people that we, we kind of defend. We, we contend for the gospel, we contend for believers, right? Um, we contend for believers, but then we also contend from false teachers. So we want to contend for the gospel, for other believers. That's what we're doing when we gather together as the body of Christ. When you come in here, I'm contending for the, the gospel, I'm talking about the faith. I'm exposing you to truth after truth after truth that's found in God's word because I want you to be growing. I want you to be firmed up. I want you to agree with sound doctrine. I want you to be confirmed in it. I want you to be deepened in it and strengthened in the faith and the truth and in the gospel so that when you walk away week after week after week, Hopefully, prayerfully, you're getting nurtured, you're getting encouraged, you're getting built up, you're getting edified in your faith. But also, we need to contend for the gospel because it exposes false teachers. When you contend for the gospel, you're exposing false teachers and their teachings. We see them on TV all the time. We hear about them. Maybe you hear about it at work in a cubicle next to you, somebody's talking about something of faith. What's your reaction? Well, I want you to be able to, because you know the truth, because you're able to stand, because you have a spine, because you have a background, to stop and to say, you know what, I'm not going to be a jellyfish Christian anymore. Sorry. And if that means ruffling some feathers, so be it. I mean... We've all been at that point at some point in our life. And I would just call you to repent, to say, you know what? I've been a jellyfish for a long time. I'm going to give it up. 
I'm not going to put up with this stuff anymore. I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to teach sound doctrine just in the way I'm even interacting with those who don't embrace sound doctrine. And the good news is, is that's what you can do. You can do that right now. You can just repent and say, Lord, you know what? I refuse to be a jellyfish Christian anymore. Allow me to be an impact. Allow me to be light in darkness. Change the circle of impact that I have as a Christian day to day. But what do you have to do? You have to know the truth. You have to know the truth. You, you, you cannot defend something that you do not know. That would be hard to do, would it not? First uh, John chapter 4, verse 1, John writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, there are some spirits out there that are not from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I mean, that's why we do this. That's why we contend for the faith. That's why we want to firm up the faith. But we also want to expose the false. Because there are many false prophets, false teachers, and they're like a magnet, attracting people. Why? Most of them attract people just be simply because they smile. They look good. They speak well. They look put together. And they smile. Um, I figured this out a long time ago. People trust a smiling false teacher much quicker than a frowning <laughs> defender of the faith. <laughs> they just will. Look at Joe Olstein. You know, I mean, the guy that never stops. He's smiling in his sleep, probably. <laughs> Permanent smile. I don't know who his dentist is, but he must be pretty good, man. He's got some pearly whites there. And people look at that and they say, well, you know, come on, Pastor. He's smiling. He seems so pleasant. He's really nice. And, and his sermons made me feel warm and fuzzy. I mean, this is serious. Listen, he will lead you to hell with his smile. Any false teacher will. Don't follow somebody just because they smile or they seem nice. I mean, what are we supposed to do as believers? What are we supposed to do, especially as Bible-believing Christians? We're supposed to evaluate what? Everything they say. Everything they do. By what? By the truth of the word of God. That's what we're called to do. The standard of truth is not how you feel or how someone makes you feel. The standard of truth is what? It's the scriptures. It's the word of God. So we come together week after week after week, and what do we do? We talk about this book. We study this book. What does it say? This is the standard for our life. I mean, remember, Jude is writing this letter. He's writing this epistle to remind us and to bring attention to the, the very fact that false teachers have come into this church. That's, what he's, that's why he's writing it. I mean, he wanted to write, he says in verse 3, hey, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but guess what? I can't. Because these false teachers have crept into your church and you don't even know it. You're not even aware of it. 
we talked about how these are spiritual terrorists. And they're terrorists for two reasons. They're unknown. They don't come in and announce themselves. They're unknown. They operate in secrecy. They operate hidden. And secondly, there's nothing that they won't do for their cause. They really don't care. Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, and he's, he's talking about here in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he's talking about uh, qualifications for church leaders. He's talking about qualifications for someone who would be a pastor or an elder in a church. And here's what he says in verse 9. He says, he talks about some character things, but in verse 9 he says this, we must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And then it says this, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you're drawing a line in the sand. You're not just being nice to everybody. And I mean, this is a standard, basic, bottom line qualification for leadership in the church. You're willing to stand up for what's right and call out what isn't. You have to be able to explain the truth, to defend the truth, and then you also have to be able to unmask the counterfeit. Because the counterfeit is always there. It's always there. We may not just, we may not know it. It's, it's really a basic, bottom line, essential function of any shepherd. Because not only do we feed the flock, but what? We're also called to what? Protect the flock. If you just feed the sheep and you don't give them any protection, guess what? You're going to have a bunch of dead sheep on your hands, right? Because the wolves are going to come and devour them. You have to protect them. You have to protect the flock from the wolves that seek to destroy them. Now, you know, some people would say, well, Pastor, you shouldn't mention names and people and ministries from the pulpit and call them out. That's, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's not being very nice. It's not politically correct. It's not very loving. And I would just say this, if I explained it to you this way, I mean, say this summer, nice hot summer day, and you had uh, on your street, in your neighborhood, you looked and you saw three, three lemonade stands set up around the block there. And you were going to go to one of these lemonade stands to get some lemonade. And I had more information than you did, so I came to you and I said, hey, be careful. Two of those lemonade stands, the lemonade has arsenic in it, and you'll be dead as soon as you drink it. Two of them. Have a nice day. <laughs> Enjoy your lemonade. <laughs> Would that be nice? Would that be loving? No, you'd be saying, which, which of the three has the arsenic in it, right? Tell me, name it. You would want me to do that for you. Now, the last time we were together in December, we were looking at verse 8. And so I just want to read for us from verse 3 to verse 8. And I'll read uh, verse, verse 9 too, but we probably won't get to that. 
He says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, we talked about this, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that of the great day verse 7 just as sodom and gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire yet in like manner these people also in like manner these people also yet in the same manner just as israel who apostatized just as the angels who left their abode and apostatized just as sodom and gomorrah who defected from the knowledge of god that he gave to them in the same manner as they they defected from that these men these current apostates that infiltrated the church that's who he's talking about these these men in like manner, these men also, relying on their dreams, they don't have anything else to stand on. Do you understand a false teacher has nothing to stand on? They have no truth to stand on. That's why they have to create their own truth. <laughs> That's why they create their own reality. That's why they do what they do. That's why they say the wacky things they say. It's not, it's not logical. It doesn't make any sense. But they have to come across as authoritative because they're not standing on the word of God. That's for sure. And so he says in verse 8, what do they do? And he begins to give us these characteristics of these apostate teachers, these apostates. Uh, he says, first of all, they defile the flesh. Secondly, they, 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 they're insubordinate. They reject authority. They're immoral, they're insubordinate. And then thirdly, they're irreverent. They, they blaspheme uh, angelic majesties or glorious ones, as some translations read. And so we looked at this last time. Basically, they do what they do by dreaming. Um, it literally says these dreamers. Now, you call somebody a dreamer. I mean, that's not really a compliment in this sense. You know, it's somebody who's just all over the place. It identifies them as dreamers because they basically, what they do, they rejected the only foundation there is. They reject the word of God. And they base their teachings on a myriad of things. Their own experiences, their own intuition, their own uh, thinking, their own deluded minds, their insights. They come up with their own truth. And they make their own 
decisions and come up with their own concoctions based on imaginary visions, imaginary revelations, and even their own, their own dreams. They claim to have this higher insight. You know, anybody that's in a cult, anybody that's in a false teaching situation, they're always claiming like they have a corner on the truth. Like they know more than you do because they have a special relationship with God that you don't have. But you can have it if you just give me more money. You know, sow that seed and go down that road and that's what they want. And whatever they parade themselves to be in truth, um, they're immoral, they're insubordinate, they're irreverent. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they, they blaspheme these glorious ones. Now, we got through the first two last time. Um, they're not driven by some kind of superior insight. That's how they always come across they're, they're always supposed to be smarter than you. They have a better intellect. They have a better intuition. They have a, a secret knowledge of God. They're always, oh, let me tell you the secret of this, the secret of that. You know, I found the secret of the secret verse in the Bible. Whatever it might be, they're making this stuff up. And yet people fall for it all the time. The Mormons don't have a secret. Christian Science, Mary Baker, Eddie, she doesn't have a secret. Jehovah Witnesses. Rutherford, he didn't have a secret. I would even go to say the Catholic system doesn't have a secret. Because it's false. Their dreams are nothing but musings in their own distorted minds. They have an elevated intuition and they think more of themselves than they really are. They defile the flesh. And we talked about when they when it says that they are insubordinate, they reject authority, that word, we get the word kurios from. Remember I said they reject the lordship of Christ. They're in control, not Christ. And so tonight we want to come to the third one. Sorry, that was a long introduction, but we're just going to take this one tonight. <laughs> they blaspheme glorious ones or angelic majesties. Um... It's a weird, weird way to say it. They blaspheme glorious ones. What does that even mean? I want to try to explain this to you tonight the best I can. Um, but, but understand, these, these people are not nice people. They may seem nice, but I think they, I, they, they honestly are devoid of the Spirit. And if they're devoid of the Spirit, they're not Christians. They're just in a shell game, taking advantage of people, and you see it all the time. You see it all the time. And you don't have to be a Benny Hinn to be, be this either. There, there are people in, in churches all over the place that they may not be as bad as Benny Hinn, but they're doing the same thing, basically. Um, I mean, when you look at what goes on in the, the, the Catholic Church, what has gone on in the Catholic Church, you know, in the priesthood with all the molestation and all this stuff, you know, in a weird way, my heart really goes out to them because they have no ability, they have no ability whatsoever to restrain their sinful desires. They have none. Because they don't have the Spirit of Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not believers. And yet they're called to be this, live this life of celibacy. 
I mean, most Christians can't even do this. <laughs> and yet we're expecting, you know, people who don't even have the Spirit of God to do this. It's crazy. Um, on the other hand, I think they're deadly dangerous because they're leading people to hell day in and day out, like any other false teacher. Um, but Second Peter 2.10 says of them, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. They indulge in the flesh. You know, I, it's so weird, but you're not even surprised anymore when you hear some of these people, you know, um, falling into immorality and things like that. So, yeah, there goes another one. It's just, it's almost normal. We've, we've grown callous to it. In, in verse 18 of Second Peter 2, it says, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. That doesn't sound like somebody who's innocent. Somebody asked me one time, well, don't you think Joel seems a Christian? I mean, don't you think he's a Christian? No, he's not a Christian. He's not. He doesn't embrace the biblical teachings of who Christ is or anything else. He's, he's, he's a sham artist. He's a scam artist. That's what he does. I mean, anybody that would, and, and not just him, but all those ministries. I mean, think about it. They, they spend most of their time out of this country, in foreign countries, where people don't have two nickels to rub together almost. They're poor. They're living in poverty. And they fly in on their Learjet. And they land. And they take every little dime, every little penny from these people through the prosperity gospel and, oh, just sow your seed and all this other garbage they teach them. And the people are in a bad way, so they figure, hey, why not? What do I have to lose? And then they jump back on their, their jet and land in Dubai for the night and spend $30,000 on a hotel room. And who would do that? I don't think a Christian would do that. I don't think somebody who has the spirit of Christ would do something like that. These are evil people when it comes right down to it. And yet, Christians all across the board give them passes on everything. I've heard even Christians in our own church say, well, I like, you know, I like Joyce Meyer. I like this person. I like that person. You know, I don't believe everything. No, stop. You're playing with fire and you don't even realize it. It's so important to draw that sand in, draw that line in the sand because they are of the flesh. They do the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5.19 says, The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And that's where it all starts. It was for immorality that Israel left, was, was left in the wilderness. It was for immorality that the angels were bound in chains. It was for immorality that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. They reject the authority of Christ. They're immoral. But... Tonight we want to look at this idea that they blaspheme these glorious ones. That word blaspheme, it means to slander, to speak evil of, uh, to, prof- to, to uh, uh, speak profanely of, of sacred matters. Plas- blasphemo in the, in the original Greek sounds just like blaspheme. And they, they blaspheme. It's in the present tense. It's not like they just do it once. 
You know, if they made a mistake, I could understand, right? But they don't. They, they continue to blaspheme. And it says they blaspheme. Look, look at this phrase here. My, my, my ESV says glorious ones. They blaspheme the glorious ones. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Um, if you, it's even stranger in the original language because the Greek is doxas. Doxas, D-O-X-A-S in our alphabet from which we get doxology it's a word that means glory they blaspheme glory it could refer to some commentators say well this refers to the glories of god it could refer to the glories of christ it could refer to the glorious uh, divine truth but the word blasphemy is clear enough in its intention to be identified that it's, it's, it's blaspheming something that's, that's holy, it's something that's sacred. It's basically to curse what is sacred. That's what it means to blaspheme. So in that way, the third point here is, is you see their irreverence, their irreverence. Um, these people who claim to represent Christ, they claim to be some of them claim to be scholars of the New Testament. They have many degrees after the names and all kinds of things. Um, they're going to help us find the real Jesus, you know. Uh, they're really blasphemers. This is how the Bible describes them. I know this is hard for us to understand, but this is what it does. Uh, certainly Israel did that. They blasphemed God. What did they do? They made an idol, remember that? And they worshipped it. That was blasphemy. The angels did that. They blasphemed the glories of heaven. Certainly, Sodom and Gomorrah, you could say, did that. They blasphemed the very holy angels that were there. I mean, uh, very serious. So these blasphemers, these apostates are ill, irreverent. They're, um, and when you, when you look closer at them, they... They, they claim to have the secret knowledge. They don't really have anything to stand on. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 22, I'll just read a couple of these verses about blaspheming God. Here's what it says. Whom have you mocked and reviled against whom you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? Very serious thing to blaspheme holy things, to especially holy God. Psalm 74, 22 says, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how foolish, how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This isn't something new. This isn't something that people, oh, they blaspheme God today. They were blaspheming God back in Jude's time, and they were doing it all the way back to the beginning of man, basically. God takes this very seriously. In Matthew chapter 12, the Lord says this in verses 31 to 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But, <laughs> but, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. 
Is there a unforgivable sin today? Sometimes people ask that question. Can you commit the unforgivable? What's the unforgivable sin? Well, if you look in the New Testament, the unforgivable sin basically is attributing the works of Jesus, the divine miracles that Jesus performed through his own power, through the power of the Spirit. He performed these miracles while he was on earth. There were people on earth that saw the miracles. They couldn't discount the miracles. Yeah, he raised this guy from the dead. Yeah, that guy, had, now he can see. Oh, that guy can hear. That guy has no more leprosy. They can't argue that he actually did a miracle. But instead of saying, wow, you must be who you said you are, Jesus, what'd they do? They said, yeah, well, you're doing these miracles, but you're doing them by the power of who? Not of God, but of Satan. When you get to that point, there's no hope. There's really no hope. When you get, and you're so solid in your unbelief where you're blaspheming God, where else are you going to turn? That sin isn't forgivable. The false teachers were not just irreverent in some mild sense, but here it says specifically against these angelic, glorious ones. Um, the New American Standard translate that angelic majesties. Um, that's probably one of the better translations because I think he is talking about angels here, and I'll show you why. Um, turn over to backing over to ch- chapter two of Peter, and, and look at uh, verse ten. We we read that, but I want to read it again because I want to continue down to verse eleven. And I'll show you why I believe these glorious ones refer to angels. He says in verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust and defiling passion and despising authority, he says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. There's the same phrase in the ESV. Whereas angels, he relates it to angels there, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. They blaspheme doxas. They blaspheme glorias. Um, why is angels brought up there? What does that have to do with anything? Well, you could stop and you could say that angels are glorious, right? I mean, especially... The, the angels that are pure and holy, they're holy angels. They're glorious. And Peter used the same word to identify angels as the objects of such blasphemy here in his letter. Well, how do, how do false teachers, these, these people, in like manner, it says there in verse 8, they reject authority, they defile the flesh, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, how do false teachers blaspheme angels? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, who are we to stand up against an angel, right? I mean, that, every time you see an angel appear in the New Testament, what happens? And people cower in fear, right? That's because they're glorious beings. Um, angels are associated in the Bible with the giving and the guarding of God's law. And I'm going to show you that tonight. Um, throughout redemptive history, holy angels who are devoted to to God's holy glory, they, have a, they had a special role in establishing God's moral order. Turn all the way back in the New Testament to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 
Old Testament. New Testament, Old Testament, you know where it's at. (laughs) (laughs) Old Testament, chapter 33. How do false teachers blaspheme angels? Um, Well, we see here in Deuteronomy 33 an instance where God gave angels the ministry of helping communicate um, his law. In, in, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Moses is kind of going over the history of Israel, if you will. And he's about ready to die. And he calls the sons together, the sons of Israel together before his death. And he says to them in verse 2, he kind of reminds them of their history. He reminds them of what happened when uh, uh, of, of God coming down at Sinai when, when he was there. And, and look at what he says. He says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came, look, from the 10,000 of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Here's a picture of God coming down from Sinai with literally tens of thousands of angels, myriads of angels, holy angels. What happened at Mount Sinai? The giving of the what? Giving of the law, right? So here for the first time, you you see a picture of angels being associated with the giving of the law. 10,000 holy ones. Um, If you look over in uh, Psalm, turn over to Psalm 68, verse 17. Psalm 68, verse 17. The psalmist says here, the chariots of God are twice 10,000. Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. And then he says, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So once again, you see these myriads and myriads of angels associated with the giving of the law. You know where else you you read this this verbiage in the Bible? Thousands upon thousands, tens of holy ones. You look in the book of Revelation. There's angels all around the throne. So when God came down to Sinai, at Sinai to give the law, angels were there. And they were there in massive force, the Bible tells us. 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of them. They came for the giving of the law. And the numbers are, are the same numbers used to describe how many numbers surround the throne of God in heaven. That's a lot of angels. So it's a pretty important event. Now in the New Testament, in the seventh chapter of Acts, if you turn over there, this is interesting. Acts chapter 7. This is the sermon that's given by Stephen right before he's uh, persecuted. And if you go down to verse uh, 53, he gives us more insight into this. He says, as your fathers did, so do you verse uh, 51 there, 52, which of the prophets did your 
fathers not persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And then look at what it says in verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by who? By angels. And did not keep it. So these glorious ones were responsible to guard, to keep the word of God. Galatians 3.19 is another place where uh, Paul points this out. And he says, why then the law? He's talking about the law. Um, chapter 3, verse 19, Galatians. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was, look at what it says, put in place through who? Through angels. By an intermediary. Intermediary. I mean, I don't know if you ever pictured that, but angels played a very important part, a very particular role in the giving, the guarding, and the, the ordaining of the law of God. Even in Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us this. Therefore, verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 2, verses 1 and 2, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the writer of Hebrews is... is making a point that, you know what, what you have, you have God's truth, don't drift away from it. And he says in verse 2, for since the message, what, declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So once again, the angels played a role in this. Um, and then, of course, in Isaiah Chapter 6, verse 3, you have all the angels and um, the, the one called to the other. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the holy angels will be involved in the ultimate uh, judgment of the wicked. So when you come back to Jude, what you see here is you see immoral people who then are rebelling against divine lordship. There are immoral people who defile the flesh by their own corruption. And not only that, but they're irreverent. They blaspheme the holy angels who have a, a special place in guarding the law of God. And so whether they recognize it or not is really not important. Um, apostates in their immorality, in their insubordination, blaspheme not only God, they blaspheme not only Christ, but they blaspheme not only the Holy Spirit, but they blaspheme the holy angels as well. Um, now, go back to Jude and look at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. We'll close up here in a second. He says in verse 14, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Now, I believe that's a, a reference to uh, angels here, but remember, we are coming back with the Lord. So we are, are including with the angels here. But he says to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him so you have these 
lawless, immoral, insubordinate apostates who not only blaspheme the holy angels, they also blaspheme God himself. And this is why it's, it's such an important thing to recognize who these people are and not to play footsie with them. You know, if somebody's going to get judged, I don't want to be standing next to that person. I don't want to be linking arms with someone who's not standing on the truth of the word of God. Now, verse 9 brings up a whole other thing. We're going to get into this next week because he goes further and he talks about the archangel Michael. And we're going to give you a little feedback on who Michael is and, and all that. And he says, contending with the devil was disputing about the, Mo- the body of Moses. So you have Michael the archangel, a holy angel, the archangel. There's only one. And he is contending with who? With Satan. With the devil. He's arguing with the devil. He's having a dispute. What's the dispute about? The body of Moses. And we're going to talk about this next. It sounds weird when you read it. What in the world? The body of Moses. What's that about? We're going to, we're going to discover all this next week. But he says this at the end. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment on Satan. In other words, Michael is arguing with Satan, and he wouldn't even blaspheme Satan, who is a fallen angel. And Michael's a holy angel. And yet these false teachers blaspheme holy angels. That's how far gone they are. And we're going to paint that picture for you next week. But hopefully that gives you a little insight. You know, I know that was a lot to go through, but hopefully it, it it, it helps you understand the serious nature of not only our study in, through Jude, but just the serious nature of understanding and knowing what the Scripture says and knowing the Bible so that you don't have to, when someone brings something out, you don't have to respond in fear and cower and, well, I don't know. You know. No, you're able to stand and you're able to give an apologetic and, and give a defense for the hope that lies within you. Father, we thank you for your word tonight and lord we pray that you would give us uh, a backbone help us to stand up in this evil world against all that's unrighteous and unholy and and lord i pray that we would do it in an unapologetic manner father give us boldness beyond our own ability lord and yet still help us to be filled with grace and love and mercy for people we don't want to be rude just to be rude but at the same time we want to call out uh, heresy when we see it We don't want to just allow it to uh, creep in to our lives or our church or our minds, anything, Lord. We pray that we would be very discerning in this this area. And, Lord, I'm sure we have loved ones, we have friends that are are just oblivious to this. They don't even even consider it uh, on the map of danger. And yet, Lord... We see how serious it is, how you take it so seriously. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us wisdom as we pursue um, the truth and our faith and build us up and help us to be that light in a, in a dark, sinful world that would, um, just like bugs are gravitated to a light, I pray that people would be gravitated to us because we're standing out for Christ. And Lord, we just pray that for us as individuals. We pray that for our church as well. And pray that you would just uh, keep us safe next week or so with all this rain and flooding. And Lord, I know that some people have even lost their lives here in the Bay Area because of the flooding. And 
And Lord, we pray for those families. You comfort them. And, and Lord, just protect uh, uh, those people who are near waterways and things like that and, and, and keep them safe. And Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.